Ellen. And I'm Anya, aka Strangely Literal, and this is a Shadows and Shamblers interview. Today we have a special guest, the film editor for episode three, Head Full of Snow, Amy Duddleston. Welcome, Amy. Hello, you guys. I'm very happy to be here with you. We're so glad to have you. Yeah. Stay tuned after the episode for a mini mailbag and article discussion. Amy has worked on several TV shows and movies, including Big Love, The Killing, Dexter, and the 1998 film Psycho. I also feel the need to point out that she worked on the 1999 film Broke Down Palace that <laughs> I watched as a teenager and gave me a big fear of like drugs and international travel. International for- travel. You're not the first person to tell me this. <laughs> forever. No, seriously. Every time I travel abroad... <laughs> And I do it frequently for my job. Every sure. time I travel abroad, I'm just like thinking about like, okay, don't get caught with drugs. Like, yeah, you never exactly. know. You never know who's going to give you some backpack to take across. To, yeah. <laughs> so I think over the past decade or so, the public has gotten a much closer look into how TV shows are made. Mm. Um, and particularly, we're now entering what's being called like the age of the showrunner. And everyone's talking a lot about showrunners and the role that they play. Um, But I think we've gotten much less focus on sort of the post-production end of things. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so my first question for you is basically just, like, tell us about what your job as an editor is, both from a creative and a technical perspective, and, like, how exactly does your job fit in with the other people on the post-production team? Okay, well, my job, my job as an editor, you know, on paper, it's kind of straightforward. It's like, you take the footage that's shot on set every day, and you put it together, more or less according to the way it's written. I mean, that's basically how I go at it. I put it together according to the script, you know, and I slowly build the show or the film. And um, it gets tricky. It's like, some days you'll get some really fun improv, some days you'll get some stuff that, you know, isn't so great and are we going to keep this in because i don't know basically like when i'm assembling stuff that's been shot you're just trying to do it as the simplest way like the way it's written you know and um and then after the shooting is done the director comes in and you spend time with that person and you kind of shape it to the vision of of the director like what they and what they saw the show as and so when that person's done, that's when the showrunners come in. Brian and Michael had very specific ideas of how this was going to be. So as soon as they came into the room, everything changed. So my job is highly collaborative, especially working in television. Like sometimes, like on films, it's you're working with fewer people, really, and you get to work with the director for a very long time. Film is a very director-driven medium. You're spending like three months with them. For, you know, at the, at the minimum, like creating their their version of the film. So in television, you know, you get four days. <laughs> so, oh my god! Oh my god! Wow. It's four days, and so <laughs> That's it nuts. was shocking to me too when I start, first started working in TV. I was like, "How long does the director get?" Like, oh my god! <laughs> um, when you say you're doing it day by day, are you like, so they shoot that day and you're kind of building it, whatever they shot that day or like? Yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't so know that. I, I thought, yeah. yeah. And so 
do you get to make a lot of the decisions for yes, like I do. which takes are the yes. best? Oh, that's awesome. I mean, I follow notes, you know, if the director likes something and they make a note when they're shooting on the set with the script supervisor, if it's, if it's, I mean, I ha I still make the decision whether or not I disagree with you. I didn't think that was the best take. I will go with that, but, um, I have to make that decision. So mm -hmm. that's my job, you know, deciding what goes in and I'm the, I'm the initial decider. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome I, so when you are putting stuff together is it mainly the visuals or are you dealing with the audio at the same oh, time no, no you're dealing with the dialogue i mean that's really you're you're choosing performances you know mm -hmm. this, this is like the most important thing so what happens after like say you've assembled everything the, do you have to like then go back and streamline it according to what the director says or what the showrunner oh yeah that's when mm -hmm. the process really starts. Like dailies, mm -hmm. dailies can be kind of drudgery. I mean, I'm not, I've done it. I've worked in this business for so long that like assembling footage is becoming like the most boring thing in the world. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, it is like you're making all the choices and you're doing everything. But like for me, the real work happens after it's all been put together. And that is my favorite part. But, um, oh, interesting. Yeah. And so that's like making more changes or maybe going oh, off yeah. of the shooting script to exactly. make it better. Exactly. I see. Exactly. Well, so that's interesting in regards to this particular episode. There was like an article that came out before the show premiered that said that the show was originally supposed to be 10 episodes and then they shortened it yes. to eight. And that was as per the showrunner's decision yes. instead of the studio. Yeah. So this seemed like the episode that really felt the most pressure from that decision. Do you yes. know anything about that? Yeah. I do. I was in the room where it happened. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. That was my friends. Um, yeah. It, it was... It was a bunch of things. Like when they decided to get rid of episode 10, that was a very, that was a budgetary thing. Okay. They really wanted to put a lot of oomph into the last episode. So they subtracted one. I had been the original editor of episode four. It was the, that was where you met Mr. Nancy, like the whole ship, you know, the slave ship. I cut that opening. Uh -huh. That was okay. in my episode four and it ended up in episode two. Um, right. And the whole episode was actually Mr. Nancy and, meeting up with, with Shadow and Wednesday. Oh. But some of the adventure needed to be reshot. And so, <laughs> and it was a really, it was going to be huge. And it was an expensive so, adventure. It was an expensive adventure. And um, because it wasn't right. It just, like, Brian came in and was like, this is just not what I pictured. And, and, and Michael said the same thing. He was just like, you know, this is, this is going to hurt us. This is not, they came up with the idea of rewriting the last episode, kind of incorporating Mr. Nancy back into that. And some of the things that happened and combining episode three, which I inherited from another editor, a bunch of that stuff um, needed to be reshot. Like uh, Zariah pulls on the rooftop. They recast that part. Oh, wow. yeah, they had another actress playing that part. And so they completely reshot it. And episodes three and four became one. And we moved Mrs. Fadil, which was originally supposed to be the way the show opened. Really? To, yes. 
to episode, I guess it became episode three, and it kind of became our Muslim-themed thing, which in the end, yeah, it actually, sure. I was like, oh yeah, Mrs. Fadil really works here now, especially yeah. with Salim and Jin, but it took a lot of time <laughs> to kind of get it all right. And I mean, I when I, they told me it was going to be combined, I seriously, I panicked. I, I was like, oh my God. I was already on this show kind of out of my comfort zone because I've never worked on something so effects heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the person, you know, that's always editing two people in a room talking. And I loved like the challenge of this whole thing, but it was very nerve wracking as an editor, just going, okay, how I'm going to make this seem like it was supposed to be like this the whole time. You know? <laughs> it totally does though. I it does. It really does. But yeah. it took a lot of moving around and a lot of just thinking about it. There's yeah. stuff like with Mad Sweeney in that episode where yes. it seems clear to me that like when he wakes up in the John that that yeah. should be in episode two. Yes. And, yeah. Why is it there? Why is it not at the end of episode two? But it just right. is because you're introduced to his whole I'm out of luck story. Mm-hmm. It starts with him waking up. Right. So it's just we, you know, we use the jumping of time very liberally in the show. Obviously, it's kind of literary the way it's done. So we're back with Matt Sweeney. You didn't see him, you know. <laughs> he could have been sleeping was, in there for yeah, days. We don't because know. You didn't see him in episode two. So, hey, guess what? We're back with him. At the end of episode two, we were kind of like. Brian Fuller and Michael Green talked a lot about compassionate yes. immigrant stories, and we really like, haven't seen yeah. any yet. And that totally makes sense that Mrs. Fidel was supposed to be like yes. the introduction to the whole series. And also just because of yes. all the prologues, I think that one is my favorite, not necessarily in terms of performance, but it, it like feels the most cinematic. When I heard that it was going to be in this episode, mm. and I mean, everybody was just like, you're putting the Vikings at the beginning of the show. Oh my god! You know, <laughs> I the love Vikings it. really. That's great. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> because it's brutal and and it's a hard. And I mean, yeah, when man. you think of Mrs. Fadil and you know and Anubis, it's like they're so beautiful, and the story is so beautiful. And and when I first watched, yes episode one when i first came onto the show i was like oh my god it's so beautiful you're really just (laughs) so taken with it did you inherit the entire fadil sequence i inherited all of fadil um little pieces of it got shot like reshot and the visual effects were not even like even done the network always wants to make something shorter i you know and i get it it's like they're selling themselves so they're like, can't you make Mrs. Fadil a little shorter? It just seems so long. And I, I did various versions of it where it was shorter. And then Michael, who's the most passionate advocate of Mrs. Fadil, was just like, just put it back. I, I'm heartbroken. I can't stand it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I accomplished their it's network so note, right? It was like, you did, but I, I'm heartbroken. So I was like, put it back. Just. It's funny, though, how much starting with that Viking yes. sequence... I like it knowing who Wednesday is. It really does make yeah. a lot of sense. But it's like, yeah. And in terms of making a statement about the show and what the show is about, I think it kind of gave a lot of uh, viewers 
the impression that American Gods was kind of trying to be more Game of Thronesy than it actually is. If you'd started with Mrs. Fidel, it would have been like a much different show. It just in terms of like the viewers that stayed, yeah. you know, I think. But I, I, mm-hmm. but, I, but the, you know, if those people, it, it wasn't going to be their cup of tea anyway. That's the thing. It's like they would have seen the Vikings yeah. at the beginning of episode two and been like, huh? So. <laughs> This show is crazy. Um, right, right. So they were saying in an interview that that we kind of featured about the Mr. Nancy scene that Orlando Jones does these amazing kind of vocal transitions between yes. different accents as he's giving his speech. Did did he, like was that oh, there yeah. in the performance Absolutely. on every take, or did he yeah. do that after? Oh, so that was like in the moment. That guy and was like you. Pray for Compe and Nancy to help you, you know, every single time he had it in that voice. It was very cool. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. He was like, his performance was amazing. And that was like one of my first days on the show. I was just like, oh my God. I'm like working on the the most amazing thing. So a kind of a two-part question. Are you watching American Gods as it airs? And... And do you normally watch your own work as it airs? I do, because I'm obsessed with like how it looks and sounds. I'm always like very... Like I've been watching it with the Stars app, and that's pretty a pretty great way to watch it. The sound is really good, and the picture mm-hmm. is really good. On cable, it gets really smushed. I, you know, so I get really upset. Like it's too dark, it's too horrible sounding, it's too awful. Um, <laughs> so. Oh, that's true. Because they, yeah, they a yeah. seven hundred and twenty filter. Oh, it makes us crazy. Like a show like The Killing that I worked on. Because of the rain and the, the the darkness and everything, it just it would look so awful and sound so horrible, and you're just like ah, you know. <laughs> they worked on fixing that, especially with the with the, how much rain we had in that show. It was really uh, a big deal. But. So, are you in charge of the sound mix too? Like you're controlling the levels? There's, I mean, I'm there and I and I give notes um, on like dialogue mm-hmm. and certain things but um music but they're the showrunners and everybody they're in charge and and you know we have a sound editor at that point that comes on and you know the way brian reitzel composes music it's he's kind of it's going through the whole thing and it's a soundscape that music is essential yeah to the whole show it's a different show without it so is he he's writing the music after the episode is mostly cut and put together? So we use like temp music Hmm. um, from other movies or other shows as a placeholder of like where we like things. But I was told one of the editors on the show, um, Stephen Philipson, who did uh, episode five and episode six, he worked on Hannibal. And he said, you know, all the music you're putting in, he's not even going to try and match it. He's just going to throw it out and do his own thing. And I was like, okay, that's really good to know. And, and Brian had, you know, Brian Fuller had the same attitude. It was just like, you know, we would try and find like pieces that helped because we do have to show it to the network and we have to show it to the studio and they have to be able to relate to it. So we have to find the right pieces that, you know, because music notes are the easiest things for um, studios and networks to give. So you do try to get it as, as something they like, but Brian Fuller would just be kind of like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, our, we did have a music editor, and he did give us some pieces, and he does work with Brian Reitzel, but um, 
And some of his pieces were great, especially with Salim and Jen. I used like during the sex scene in the hotel. Um, he gave me this really cool piece of music, and Brian Weitzel did a very interesting approximation of it. For the bank robbery, we used a piece. Of, uh, our temp music was from the Grifters, so it was like Elmer Bernstein. It was old. I um, love that. It was That's great. great. But and, yeah, I know. <laughs> And then I, when I heard the music, I, like Brian Reitzel actually kind of used some of the fun stuff from that. It was kind of, he, he was quirky and fun and I was really happy. So are there any moments in the episode in which you're particularly proud of the work you did um, or something that was like particularly difficult to pull off that a viewer might not be able to spot on their own? Um, the whole Salim and Jen uh section i'm i'm very proud for that it's you know it's like it wasn't like just cutting a sex scene um it was so much more and you know and i have to like visualize like what it's gonna look like you know part of that was just like yeah the gin's eyes are gonna be on fire our early tests of gin's eyes being on fire were not you know so hot so we weren't really sure Mm -hmm. Like, what that was that going to look like? And, you know, and Brian will always reference, like, a film or like something else, like photographs. He was thinking of Nightwatch, you know, that, that Russian movie? Oh, like, yeah. The, yeah, with the light and the fire and the, you know, and you're building up to this massive visual effects sequence when they're in their desert, you know. <laughs> yeah. Turning into black obsidian glass, and, you know, obsidian. That, we called this sequence the Obsidian Lovers, basically, in our editing room, because... They were supposed to turn into obsidian glass. and That's uh, cool. Yeah. And all we had were these guys in black makeup. So <laughs> <laughs> having sex. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> he posts pictures of uh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Musa posted the pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's what that is. Yeah. That I like am just now understanding what that picture is. Yeah. <laughs> And the prop guy was like, come on, or the makeup person in the shower with him trying to help him scrub it off. That's so great. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Those are great photos. So speaking of that kind of stuff, while you're editing, does anybody tell you to like keep an eye out for like hilarious bloopers to put on the DVD extras? You know, assistant editors, they have, they just collect them. I never file them away because <laughs> I know somebody else is doing it. With the sex scene in that particular part, they said that they went back and reshot it because they, did. they, they didn't, they weren't happy with the, like the Brian positions. And in, in he was not happy. He was just like, unless this guy has a, dick the shape of a candy cane these two people are not having sex <laughs> i was like okay then <laughs> so yeah so did you have to edit the first one and then they were I like did. hey we're not going to use this yeah <laughs> yeah i did oh, man. i edited it two times you and, know um, you i'm surprised that they didn't have like a gay sex choreographer come well, they in did for, i like, mean brian first- was really funny because we had in television, you have these things called tone meetings, and it's to keep the tone of the show every at the beginning of every episode because you have different directors coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically you you tone the whole show and say, okay, this character would be doing this, and this is what we should be, you know. So we had a tone meeting for the reshoot of this sex scene where we talked to Yamla Navarro, who was the original ep- director of those scenes um, with Slim mm-hmm. and Jin. And because he wanted to reshoot it and he wanted to get it right for Brian. So we had this very funny tone meeting where Brian had 
some action figures. And one was Patrick <laughs> Bateman from American Psycho. And, um, <laughs> and the other one was Marilyn Manson. And so Brian is like sitting there, like putting Marilyn and <laughs> Alan to eat. I mean, seriously, it was like, and he's like, okay, so what I'm talking And we, can, we, you know, all of us in LA are the only people seeing it. And, and we're just like dying. And poor Yermo and the VFX supervisor are like, what is going on? And we're like, you can't see what he's doing. But it's like, so funny. It's like Marilyn's arm fell off at one point. <laughs> Very apropos for the show. It was. It was perfect. You know, it was like, it was really. So that's, so yeah, so it, a lot of preparation went into this, you know, the reshoot of the scene, a lot of it. And we were actually able to combine some of the old scene with, with some of the new stuff. Hey, that's me again. You know, it's. Uh, yeah. And you can't even tell that they're shot like six months apart or whatever. You cannot even tell. And that scene is kind of so important, not only to the story, but I think it's just going to end up be like historically important in television, in my opinion. So that's fantastic. I love that story. That's so good. It's just so funny to me thinking about in 2017, we're having a tone meeting about like how to make the best gay sex scene. When, you know, in like 2000, they couldn't even get Willow and Tara to kiss. They were, you know, they were just like doing magic all the time. Blowing out candles. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a metaphor for them, you know, doing something. And and you've been working in Hollywood throughout that whole Yes, I have been. So... Do, do you feel like you were sort of aware of that transition as it was happening? Like, did it feel like a very slow and gradual thing or or did it feel like... Yes. I worked on a lot of independent queer films. Like, I edited high art and, you know, and people would still make a big deal of, like, there's a sex scene and, oh, uh, you know, it's like, when is this going to stop being, like, such a big deal? Or just, yeah, like, when Willing Grace came on, you're like, oh, finally. It's like, <laughs> right. I remember that. And now that feels so so regressive. So repressive, yeah. It's so it's so nothing. But you're like, well, at least they figured out. Okay, these are your gay friends. It's like, (laughs) it's like I have a lot of jacks in my life, and it's kind of you know, but (laughs) and I have a lot of wills in my life, and I'm you know. Yeah. How does it feel that you got to be a part of television history? It's weird because I didn't feel like yeah. I didn't really feel like that when it was when I was working on it. I just oh, was really? like, I want this to make sense. I want it to be beautiful. I want it to move people. I did have a feeling in the back of my mind, yes, this is very important what I'm doing. But it's like when my wife finally saw it, when we watched it together, she paused it afterwards and she was like, oh my God, you did this amazing thing. And I was like, thank you. And she was like, you never <laughs> talked about it. <laughs> well, we never talked about it like... Like, it was this amazing thing. Because I was like, I just wanted to have it finished. You know, so that we could send right. it to the I, visual effects people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. You're like, we had a deadline. It's like, <laughs> you know, I just wanted it to be good so that the other people could make it good. That's all you can obsess over. This is like, I wanted the visual effects people to have it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because they had to take it to a whole other dimension. There was a an event that they had with GLAD um, at the oh, yeah. Haley Center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and they screened it for a mostly gay audience. And and uh, Neil Gaiman was there. And mm-hmm. 
Musa Kresh, yeah. Amid was there, and Brian and Michael. And it was really fun. And that was when I lost my voice and I couldn't be on the panel. So <laughs> <laughs> they asked me to be on the panel. I was like, I can't talk. Oh, man. <laughs> you don't want me to be on the squeaky panel. Um, well, well okay. at least you're getting to make up for it now That's a little bit. Right. But that was really beautiful. And it, it was just, to, to watch it in, the, in a crowd that was very open and excited to see it. It was really wonderful. On the topic of Hollywood, um, I guess I should say that we're recording this on Friday, June 2nd. Um, there's been yes. a lot of talk over the past couple days about Patty Jenkins, the director of Wonder Woman, and the headline from The Hollywood Reporter saying that the studio took a gamble with her because her last movie was like an $8 million Oscar-winning movie starring Charlize Theron, Monster. And so there's been a lot of talk about sort of the role of women in Hollywood and the different kinds of opportunities that men and women get. And so I guess as a woman who's been working in Hollywood for a long time, I'm just curious what your perspective on that is. It's funny because I got into editing knowing that a lot of women worked in editing. So I saw that as, a, as an easier way to get into the business. I never really wanted to be a director. So, you know, so yeah, there's... It's, it's, it's a traditional, I don't know if it came, like, there's so many stories in Hollywood of like, well, you know, women became editors because they're good at sewing and... Oh my God. And, seriously, like the lore that gets coughed up. Um, <laughs> what a bunch of like, garbage. No, oh what God. a bunch of crap. Yeah, you're like, yeah, sewing. That's exactly what we do all day long. Just sewing. Um, no, we're storytelling. So I kind of chose a role that I knew women were successful in. And that's kind of how I seriously got in. Because I had friends in film school who wanted to be cinematographers, who wanted to be directors, who, you know. And it's hard. And it's really hard. Still, for women being cinematographer, it's, it's you know, you literally have to... It, it's like back in the day when we did use film, you had to be really strong. So it's like those film cases were heavy. So you had to have that. And, and you were constantly getting, you know, to be a film assistant, you had to pick up the camera and put it on the doll, you know, and put it on the truck. It's, it's like, so a lot of my friends gave up and it was kind of sad that way. You know, Patty has struggled. And so just, and she could do anything. I mean, the pilot of the killing is like great television. It's great filmmaking. It's beautiful. It's cinematic. It's like, it's just, she's great. She's a great filmmaker. And why people just have to say, you know, oh, they're taking a gamble. It's like, no, Colin Trevorrow was a gamble. And those movies suck. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so Wonder Woman's great. Everybody should go see Wonder Woman. Support your yeah. female filmmaker. And it's really well done. As an editor, I felt it was too long. But I know all those superhero <laughs> movies are... It's you have to start it's the origin story, and there's so much oh, involved. That's literally your job. Like you, you, you would say that. Like, what else are you going to say? <laughs> I edit everything in my. I edit everything in my life. It's like if I eat a salad, it's like this salad could have two less ingredients, and it would be just. <laughs> you know, it's. <laughs> that song they could have ended it two bars, maybe you know, just a whole verse ago. It's just too long. So you talked a little bit about either getting hired or not getting hired for different jobs. As Mm. an editor, how do you 
go about that because oh. i guess we know you know like actors go to auditions yes but like what do the rest of you do they've called me in obviously because it's like they've seen my resume or some of the shows that i've done but you are kind of auditioning i mean you're still auditioning as an editor because one it's like these people especially on a film um where you're spending you know at least 10 weeks with that director if not more and you've got to be in a room with this person all day long, minimum five days a week, sometimes even more for 12 hours a day. Do I want to spend time with this person is really some of part of your interview. And also some of it is, you know, you've read the script for either the pilot or you've seen the pilot. And do I get the show? You know, do I understand what they're trying to do? It was really funny because my getting hired on American Gods, for example, it was mostly my friend, they needed somebody to come in, in and help because editors were getting behind because it was taking a lot longer than they thought it would. So they were like, do you know anybody who's available that's really good? And my friend Howard was like, well, Amy Duddleston's available. So, <laughs> like, you know, Brian and Michael saw my resume and they were, they obviously were fine with me coming in. They trusted me. Because editors don't have like a, a, a look book like production designers or costume designers have um, mm -hmm. where you can throw some pictures together thinking, this is what I'm thinking. Or, you know, you really have to talk about the story because that's what we do. You know? I see. So in the interview, you're sort of like giving your perspective on the yes. script and what yes. I see. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Because we are storytellers. I imagine one of the more challenging parts of your job too is when you're working on a tv show and you're assigned like episode four yeah you have to make sure that your episode fits into a context that like yes. doesn't exist yet because yeah. all of the other editors are working on their episodes at the same time yeah and hopefully yeah you'll have like something to refer to like oh okay i get where this is going and and Sometimes I, I, I've told my agents that I never want to be in like the first position after the pilot, you know, because it's a really hard position. That's a good in. call. Yeah. Yeah. I get um, that. Yeah. It's well, like, the pilot's usually finished way before the rest of yes, the show, right? It is. But, like but it's like so much changes in between the mm -hmm. time. Oh. Yeah. Because a pilot is usually shot on in, in like practical locations. Whereas like a series, they've built sets now, mm -hmm. things change and they've decided, you know, everything gets tweaked a little bit because of like network notes and stuff like that. And it's not a fun spot to be in. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you say that you're the one like kind of making all the decisions and you're getting notes from the higher ups, but do you ever have like moments where you know, Brian Fuller or somebody is over your shoulder going, okay, now transition from, you know, them doing this to Mad Sweeney and now transition to this, oh, yeah. or are you making all those choices? No, no. It's like, if, if it's like I said, like in the beginning, I, I cut everything to the way it's written, you know, mm -hmm. in the script, because especially if like Brian and Michael wrote the script, they're going to want to see the way they wrote it. And a lot of showrunners, writer, they're writers, so they're all writers. Um, they always want to see the way they imagined it, you know, on their page. You know, after they see it, then it's like, anything goes. <laughs> so, it's, right. 
It's like, no, let's move this scene over here. And forget that transition. That sucks. And let's try and think of something else. But with Brian and Michael, I mean, every little piece of this show was like done with like the utmost care and attention. Pretty, well, you, know, you came in and like pinch hit for them, you know, like in in a hard moment and, and really stitched together like an essential episode that turned out to be like fantastic. So yes. have they talked to you about since they've been renewed? Yes. They like, Amy, come back. I, I think they want me to come back. It's like we haven't had official discussions because I know that they're just getting the writer's room and everything together. So, you know, it, it takes there's just such a process of like. But yes, I, I, I've been told that they want me to come back. So I just haven't been officially asked. So Awesome. It's a whole process. Were you super excited when you heard about the renewal? I was happy because I, I learned so much on this show. I really did. And um, it really opened up a lot for me, just in terms of like the way Brian works. He just sits there and will be so quiet. And you think, oh my God, he hates like everything. <laughs> I'm so fired. And he's like, no, but what if we did something like, you know, the way his brain works, I've, 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 I really haven't met anybody like that where I needed his brain. Like, I would call his assistant and say, when can I have Brian's brain <laughs> in my room? Because I would get stuck doing something, and I was just like, you know, I'm not sure where we're going to take this. And the, and the, there was a luxury on American Gods, too, that I should say that, like, I you don't get on other television shows, where I had time to do my work. Because the last show I did, you know, I had to do three episodes in four months. Crazy. Ugh. So, yeah, it's crazy. Is that sort of an artifact of prestige cable and just like not trying to yeah. do 22 episodes in a year you get to do eight episodes in a year it is it's prestige cable like on all the hbo shows i worked on you know you, you always had time to do your work but they were trying to do this and with a schedule that was never gonna work it's like the people on the set were pressured it's like they didn't have enough time to do their work mm-hmm. it's like these, these episodes were like massive undertakings you know and um so you said that um Neil Gaiman went to the GLAAD screening, and I know that he mm-hmm. is one of the executive producers on the show. Yes. Um, and they usually give him a writing credit for, you know, he, that he wrote the book. Story, yes. Yeah. Right. So was he ever there, like, part of the tone meetings or production crew or anything like that? Was he ever behind he, the scenes? He came, I think, like, when they started shooting. And then mm-hmm. we never saw him in the editing room. We were always like, is Neil Gaiman ever coming? Um, <laughs> was he ever upstairs and we didn't know it you know um, I know that they talked to him a lot like all the scripts like all the episodes got sent to him and stuff. but he really trusted like the making of television to the people who make television once he saw the way they were shooting it he was he was really happy I, you know when the, when Michael Green told me that Amanda Palmer's favorite episode was episode three I was like yes <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. But, that kind um, of is the best. It's kind of the best. So <laughs> the spirit of Neil Gaiman was always there. I mean, he never came into the editing room, but maybe he will next season. Who knows? Who knows? Do you have any advice for people who oh. might think they want to get into editing in Hollywood? Well, if you think that you want to get into editing in Hollywood, my advice is start from the bottom up. I mean, that's what I did. I really, I started as a driver, you know, on 
on films. Um, I was lucky enough to work on a film in the editing room when I was still in college. It, it was a, it was Revenge of the Nerds. Um, oh wow! <laughs> they, they shot it at my university, and they gave a lot of the film students jobs, and um, which is an amazing thing to have happen. I got to see how an editing room worked, and just get get to know people. I, you know, that was the thing. I just just get to know how all of it works, how how a set works, how it all works. Um, you do as much as you can in all aspects of, of work, but you know, you'll be a production assistant and then work your way up because I really feel like that's the best way. It's like, you can, you can know how to use the machine, but you're still not an editor until, you know, you've been given something to edit. Cause I remember being an assistant editor going, Oh my God, I could never be an editor. This <laughs> stuff you have to deal with. Oh my God. I don't know if I can do this. And then I just got more experience. It's just like just watching my boss deal with people. This is how you do it. You know, it's so, so much of our job is just dealing with people, dealing with personalities. It's yes, it's about editing, but yes, it's about collaborating and listening and being willing to tear up everything you just did and start new. It's so much of storytelling. Yeah. yeah, it is. Well, but also it's like, I imagine that's one of the reason why Neil Gaiman was so impressed when he saw the episodes, right? Because one of the amazing things about TV and movie is it is like the work of hundreds of people coming to, you know, in a way that like writing a novel is really fantastic, but it is something that one person can do. It's one person. Yeah. And, and, you know, TV is such a collaborative medium. Yeah. I feel like I would be blown away. (laughs) <laughs> no, to come on, like, I know that, like, the first thing they shot on day one was Mrs. Fadil. And so it's like, you know, Anubis shows up and then they climb up this fire escape, which was like one floor. <laughs> I meant to say this earlier, moving Mrs. Fadil to episode three. Yeah. I almost kind of like having that right before we meet Anubis again. In episode four with Laura. Right, because then you're really you're really contrasting like the interaction between Mrs. Fadil and Anubis with Laura's interaction with Anubis. It did. It brought all of that closer together, which is really nice. I mean, Emily Browning is so good. Like every she's just She really is. (laughs) I love that they expanded Laura's part. Yeah. Have you seen episode seven yet? The new episode seven? Yes. Okay, so we'll cut this out of the podcast, but like. Yes. This is going kind of back to the the idea questions about like what it's like to be an editor, but mm. is it hard as a lifestyle to sort of? Yes, I mean, because as an is. editor, you're basically a freelancer going from job to job to job. Mm-hmm. It's difficult. It's hard. 
it's hard on my family. It's hard on me because, you know, especially, especially now, like shows are like eight episodes. Some shows are six episodes. Like I have a friend working on a six episode show, but she's doing all the episodes. So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> so that's even harder. Um, yeah, it's, it's like jobs are getting shorter. Like the last tycoon was three episodes in four months. And I'm like, Oh my God, yeah. I already have to look for another job as soon as I start a new one. So it's like feast or famine with yeah. the more prestige style. Yeah. You do get yeah. the time, but then you don't get the continuity, like the a, yeah. a long gig. Yeah. yeah. Like an old, ne- old, ye oldie network television gig of like 22 episodes. Mm-hmm. You kind yeah. of need a partner that has like a more traditional job. You do. And my spouse used to be an editor and she got out of the business. But now she's going back to school, so I just have to keep working. We read that article about how everything changed, like, right before we recorded our episode three. And so that Ah. was, like, a big part of our discussion. And, uh, yeah, and we kept talking about the editing. I was like, man, this is crazy, like, how many different stories are just packed into this one episode. So it's super impressive. And I think think that episode hangs together so well. Well, awesome. Um... Can you talk about um, anything that you might be working on next? Oh, um, I just finished a show called The Last Tycoon for Amazon. Um, mm-hmm. That They just released the trailer today. It's a completely different show than American Gods, although it was based on a novel. Um, by Scott Fitzgerald. And it's Hollywood in the 1930s. And uh, it's really fun to watch. It's kind of soapy and, and you know, melodramatic, but it's really... The acting and the the direction and just everything, the way it all came to, like the costumes and the production design, it's so beautiful. It's such a beautiful show to watch. And all the actors are good looking and, it's, <laughs> and they're very good. Like Matt Bomer, it's like you can't, like you need sunglasses to look at him. He's so good. <laughs> um, Lily Collins and Kelsey Grammer and Jennifer Beals. Like it, it's just, it, it was really, really fun. And I got, one episode. I got all the good episodes on that show. That was my yeah, my payback. It was like so easy compared to American Gods. I was like, this show's so easy. <laughs> um, this is great. And then I'm going on to this uh, the Hulu show Shut Eye, which they're revamping. That's going to be my next show about psychics in Los Angeles. Well. um, do you want to tell people like if they could follow you on Twitter or do you not care? Oh yeah, or... you can totally follow me on Twitter. I don't, you know, I, I don't really tweet a tremendous amount of stuff other than, you know, shameless self-promotion. So um, <laughs> I'm Phantom Frame on Twitter. Phantom Frame. One word. Cool. And, and we'll um, have a link to that along sure. with everything else that we've talked yeah. about in the show notes, I'm sure. Cool. Yep. yep. Well, I'm excited. Cool. Yeah. Thanks again so much. And um, hopefully as soon as uh, you get picked up again for season two, we'll have you back. That would be wonderful. Oh, this was great. So before we get to feedback, I just want to take a couple minutes to talk a little bit about episode six. I feel like we got really into discussing the more complicated aspects of the narrative and symbolism and all that. And we basically forgot to mention 
how the prologue is also just a really tragic and sympathetic story about immigrants and sort of how that reflects on the current narrative about immigrants in the U.S. Yeah, especially in light of it being uh, Mexican immigrants and the current, like, are we going to build a giant wall? And the way that a lot of people are feeling emboldened to kind of take the law into their own hands. Again, the show is much more prescient than you would ever imagine for having been filmed before the uh, the election. And I guess maybe one of the other reasons why we didn't talk about it is because it's not really something that you and I are going to disagree on. So it's not necessarily the most interesting conversation, especially given that this is a podcast about story and not about politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think most of our listeners, they didn't subscribe to our podcast to be lectured about how we need to be more sympathetic to immigrants and they actually contribute a lot to society and how it's totally hypocritical that we consider, you know, Italians and Irish people to be white now, but they weren't at the time. And now we're denigrating uh, Hispanic immigrants coming from Mexico. I guess the prologue in episode six is really about the act of crossing the border But I think there's the statement that it's making is really about anti-immigrant sentiment, even against people who, you know, have been here for decades and are very much assimilated or even Hispanic people who have been in the United States for generations like the area that's currently Texas, you know, and westward on was originally Mexico. There are a mm-hmm. lot of people who didn't cross the border. The border crossed them. Right. Because of the way that white supremacy operates in the U.S., they're being demonized as un-American. Yeah, definitely. And we just really didn't acknowledge the violence and tragedy, but it is something that weighed heavily on our minds. And we just want to let you guys know that we were thinking about it. Yeah, and that it was like so moving. I think I almost cried the first time that I was watching it. So this isn't a politics podcast, but I am going to try and look for an article I read a couple months ago that was either written by or an interview with the former U.S. government borders are talking about the reality of the situation is so far removed from the conventional wisdom regarding the border and how it's sort of portrayed in popular media and culture. Um, And so if you are interested in digging more into the crunchy political aspect of border regulations and how Trump's stupid ass wall might play into that, (laughs) um, you can check that out. Cool. Okay, so now... Moving on to listener feedback. Kelly G at Glazebrook Girl tweeted at us, I think it's interesting that you think Laura doesn't remember Anubis and the hot tub bug spray. I think she's a liar and she doesn't want to talk to Shadow about it because in the car with Audrey, it seems like she recognized Anubis fully, at least to me. I interpreted this as more of Laura trying to avoid her past mistakes she still isn't dealing with her assholery, even as a zombie. I might have to go back and rewatch that scene uh, where she runs into Anubis and Ibis on the road. Certainly she is not uh, afraid to lie. 
I do feel like her powerful feelings towards Shadow now would not like she might cover up, but I feel like she would not be as comfortable just straight up lying to him as she would have before. Yeah, and maybe she sort of like recognized him on some level without having a super clear memory of what happened. Mm -hmm. And I think the actual line that she says is, I don't know much more now than I did before I died. And what I do know, I can't put into words. So, you know, that could be about a feeling. Maybe it's a specific memory. We just don't know. Okay. And Kelly also sent us an email about the prologue for episode five. It made me think about how regional and precarious the old gods seem in contrast to the new gods. When one tribe forgot their god, it died, and there was no bringing it back. Now we have the new gods. Their followers seem to be everywhere. They cross borders and languages. It makes them seem much more powerful, more prevalent, and inescapable, but also more impersonal. Mr. World thinks knowing someone's blood type means knowing them, but the old gods actually knew their followers and cared about them. But does this matter much to people anymore? I mean, in America, colonization wiped out the regional personal gods of the native population. Modern America literally is founded on the massacre of old gods. Yeah, this is uh, an interesting consequence of having the story in a modern idiom where globalization is a factor. So a lot of world culture is kind of becoming homogenous across borders. And so the consequence of that is that the gods become much more ubiquitous and less tied to their ethnicity and region. And so that's a really good point that, you know, the influence of the new gods is everywhere. uh, But the way that those pan cultures work is that they are much less textured and they're much flatter than the more rich but smaller older traditions. That's a really good point. So next up, we have Sarah Thomas at not sailing alone on Twitter. Um, and Sarah had a wonderful, wait, was this a correction? So during the live tweet, every once in a while, somebody will say something in the show that delights me and I'll retweet it with no context. And so like, I think I did a, a, a baker's year, which I really like that. And then I also did ginger minch, which I thought was just a made up word. And she corrected me on it. Oh, yeah. So so Sarah Thomas helpfully let us know that minge is slang for pubic hair or genitals. So thank you, Sarah. <laughs> we did not know that. Which is so much better. And then on a related note, Becca Eller at the underscore Becca Eller on Twitter said, I love the new show. I also love this episode. Can we please talk about the show's understanding of body hair? I am delighted by the fuzz. Both Bilquist and Jin have normal pubic hair. On the rewatch, I noticed Jin also has a fuzzy tushy. Sometimes Hollywood (laughs) remembers the hair. (laughs) That's a good comment that a lot of times when we do get nudity on TV, it's uh, very well-groomed to the point of almost Barbie-like lack of body hair. Yep. I don't think that we're ever going to get Jillian Anderson totally naked or anything. But if the new gods are unclothed, I would expect them to be more well-groomed, more manscaped, you know, that kind of thing. Because it does seem to me appropriate that Bilquis, this ancient goddess of sex, 
would, you know, be more natural in her appearance than maybe a new god would. Ooh, that's a really good point. Yeah, I like that. I like to think that media probably looks like a Ken doll or something. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's great. It's just like, yeah, I'd like plastic. to think that too. <laughs> um, during the uh, live tweet, I pointed out that the new gods uh, want to kill the North Koreans with uh, missiles that shit rainbows, glitter and unicorns and that the new gods are crazy And Garrett Aja uh, tweeted back at me and he said, you know, that's ironically inspired by K-pop, I think, which is uh, Korean uh, pop music and pop videos. Uh, So the animation and he is like an animation guy. uh, So I trust anything that he says about animation. (laughs) So that is kind of cool if if it's true that they drew on the Korean animation culture in their PowerPoint pitch to Odin about (laughs) how to continue. Yeah, that's pretty funny. So next up, we have a text from Mandy K at Mandy K on Twitter, who said, catching up on American gods, and this is not the shadow and Laura I know from the book. To which Becca Eller responded, I like to think it's an alternate version of the book that takes place in the same universe just to keep from going completely nuts. What do you think about the versions of Shadow and Laura we get in the TV show versus the book? Do you think they're completely incompatible or just sort of looking at the same thing through a different lens? Do you, How much do you have to compartmentalize the book and the show while you're consuming those different forms of media? So this doesn't bother me too much, although I understand why it does bother people. I think it's kind of about the idea of primary values, which is, you know, like a thing that Lonnie Day and Rich came up with, uh, the idea of like why you go to a story in the first place. Mandy and I were talking about this um, because she was very upset about the musical. There's like a musical version of Dirty Dancing that came out lately. And she was just like ranting on Twitter about what garbage it was. And I asked her in an adaptation, do you want it to be very faithful or do you want it to be very innovative? And she said, it's extremely important to me for it to be uh, faithful to the source material. And for me, it's kind of the opposite. I want an adaptation to really innovate and to explore like new territory or themes that were in the original text, but, you know, didn't get as much emphasis. So I prefer that. Like if it's too close to the source material, it's kind of boring for me. And I, so I like the new lore that we're getting. I like some of the things that they're doing with shadow. I really like the new gods that we got in episode five. I I guess that comes down to your primary values. Um, If you're watching something and you want it to be extremely faithful, it's going to constantly kick you out of the story and give you a bad experience. But If you're not as tied to that, then you can just go along for the ride. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, And I think maybe I hew closer to your position than to Mandy's as far as faithfulness versus wanting to see something new and different. Also, um, Max Veiling on Twitter at Dreadfulgate tweeted at us uh, about episode five. He said, after all... 
What is media but a shapeless transmitter of content, always borrowing its form, but never claiming its own? Uh, in response to the idea that media is moving from Avatar to Avatar, from uh, Lucy to Bowie to Marilyn, uh, I thought this was a good point that, you know, the media in general wants to have like some kind of, it wants to be like a force of nature in the culture. That's kind of how it depicts itself. Uh, but it never kind of like takes responsibility for itself exactly. Like it never kind of like defines its own character. It's just like, no, we're just the media. That's just what we are. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. <laughs> he also told us that we should watch Wonderfalls and that it was really good. When I have time. AKA when American Heather. Gods is not the only thing I watch. Yeah. Uh, we also got a tweet from HCon at Spawn of Oz on Twitter, who is also interested in talking about Laura's memory of her afterlife experience um, and also thought we were wrong about that. Um, he said... I think you guys are wrong about Laura not remembering her afterlife experience. I think in her talk with Shadow, she merely edited her recollections for time's sake. The big question for me is how she knew Shadow was the one who saved her. How did she know about the coin present? And how did she know who was responsible for her getting it? Yeah, that's a really good point. I just took that for granted. I think this is one of those times where the book makes things invisible. Like, of course, he gave her the coin. And of course, she would know that. But really, it's not, of course. Like, why would we assume that? How would she know? I have no good answer for that. Other than that, she seems to have a lot of supernatural intuition and instinct related to Shadow as mm. a dead person. So I think it's not too hard to kind of hand wave that away. Mm -hmm. I mean, because after all, she is like literally kind of attracted to him and following him yeah that's true it is weird that she knows that it's a coin because it's inside of her i couldn't tell if she swallowed it or because in the book she wears it you know like she's a 1990s rapper or something in the show it's inside of her so i'm not sure yeah i don't know it does seem to be in her digestive system like we get that shot peering down her throat and we can mm -hmm. see it sitting there in her belly my answer is magic. <laughs> it's probably exactly right. Uh, it's kind of a shitty answer, but it's my answer nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> and that does it for the feedback this week. Uh, we do have a few articles that we want to share with you guys. The first one that we have here comes uh, from Vulture.com, written by Oliver Sava, entitled American Gods Recap, A Whole New World. And the part that I pulled out of here, this is just really a kind of a standard recap of episode five, but he had some good insight on the prologue, which I know some of our listeners had problems with the prologue, not just in the kind of clunky storytelling that happened near the end of that, but with the entire fact that it was animated. And that can throw some people out. Uh, he says, American Gods has used CGI for nearly all of the supernatural moments. And the digital artifice of the special effects highlights how these moments break from perceived reality. The gods exist in a heightened state of being, and the CGI allows the creative team to depict the full scope of this fantasy while also creating a visual contrast with the physical actors, props, and sets. The narration for the Coming to America opening says that the lines between people and their gods were thinner back in prehistoric days, 
and the visuals are entirely computer animated to reinforce that connection. This was a harder time with harder people and their flesh actually looks like stone or bone. There's a skeletal quality to the character design, which makes sense because these early, less developed humans are desperately looking for food in the new world. So I really appreciate this idea that like the design aesthetic gets to reinforce not just the themes, but also the world building and give the entire story like more cohesion. But I guess that comes at the price of potentially kicking some people out who don't want to be there for an animated story. Yeah, I really like it. And I think it sort of speaks to the idea we've talked about these coming to America stories being on a sort of continuum of both time and realism. So like the more recent a story is, the more naturalistic it is that we actually hear the dialogue as the characters are speaking it. And sort of as you go back through time, you sort of lose the characters being able to speak for themselves and have a lot more narration and then even lose the ability to see people in their actual flesh and they just become become animated representations of themselves. That's really cool. So one of the articles that I picked out that I wanted to share is called Every Show Should Handle Sex Like American Gods by Catherine Trendacosta in Gizmodo. Um, And I thought this was a really good comprehensive look at sex and American gods. And it does a really good job of contrasting it with the rest of the TV landscape. Um, So it sort of focuses in three parts on Bilquist, Jin, and Laura. And so it doesn't necessarily say a whole lot that's super new and that we haven't already discussed on the podcast. But I think it is the best single article looking at sex in the show overall. So it starts out saying, it's important that the actors on American Gods feel the same way as the writers, that they all think the sex scenes they're participating in, along with the accompanying nudity, means something more than exploitation or titillation. It means something that sex isn't the defining feature of American Gods, but also isn't removed or shied away from. It's also important to note that all of American God's sex has, thus far, not included rape, a horrible trope that far too many series casually use to create drama. On American God's, sex has been transcendent, boring, a form of worship, and even a transaction, but the show has happily never stooped to this sort of storytelling. American God's is smarter about sex than anything we've ever seen on screen. That's great. Yeah. So many other shows are using rape and violent sex as kind of like a shocking moment to get people talking to kind of churn up the culture in a way that I feel like is kind of thoughtless. There's just a lot of rape and there's not a whole lot of contextualizing it. Or even our favorite show, Buffy, that we keep going back to in the the season six premiere, which is Mm -hmm. just like such great television overall. There's a totally pointless and useless rape threat that really just didn't need to be there. Yeah, it's become married somehow in prestige television, rape has. And she's so right to point out that this show isn't doing that at all. Also, we had a podcast uh, that I wanted to talk about real quick, the Ars Technica podcast Decrypted, uh, hosted by Anna Lee Newitz. Uh, she's, she's doing a breakdown of each episode of American Gods, and she had on a guest host, 
with her named Jackson Crawford, who is an expert in Norse mythology and has written uh, books about it and is a professor and all this stuff. It was a really good podcast. We'll have a link in the show notes. They do kind of dither at the beginning uh, about what Mr. World is exactly. And I was kind of like, come on, you guys. Strangely literal. I already solved this problem for you. Just listen to our <laughs> podcast. But after that, they talk about uh, Odin and Viking culture. And he links it up with cowboy culture in American storytelling and how the Old West was like this nostalgic idea that was created after the Old West was long gone. And it's actually the same thing with the Eddas, which are like the source material for all of the uh, Nordic myths about Odin and Thor and stuff like that. And how those were created like in the 11 or 1200s, long after, you know, the Vikings were a really big thing. And so it's kind of a throwback in a way of this is what men used to be and this was what life was. And it's all just kind of nostalgia for a lost culture. It's really interesting. It's a it's a good look at the show and gives you good context if you want to know more about Odin. So check that out. That's awesome. Yeah, I know I sent you that podcast, although I haven't had time to listen to it. So I'll have to, to check that out once it was cool. we're done with the season. And then the final article that I wanted to share is by Liz Shannon Miller on IndieWire called... For shows like The Handmaiden's Tale and American Gods, literary adaptations are the new fan fiction. And I thought it made some really interesting points about adaptation and fan fiction and sort of how they relate to each other. Um, So she starts out by talking about how the showrunner's enthusiasm for not just translating those stories for the screen, but expanding those worlds beyond the scope of the original text wasn't that far removed from what fans do all the time these days on a variety of different platforms. Um, And then she quotes an interview with Brian Fuller saying that the show is state-sanctioned fan fiction. (laughs) Fun thing for Michael and I is that we were both fans of the book and both saw characters that weren't the main protagonists that we thought we could get our hooks into and start shifting this into a narrative that isn't just a two-man narrative, but a multi-person, multi-god, multiplicity of faiths. So we get to, like all fan fiction, identify a niche that speaks to you in a particular way, and then you start fleshing it out and allow that to be your entryway into the world. Hmm. Um, And then towards the end, she also brings up the concept of spec scripts. So spec scripts are a time-honored practice considered quasi-essential to breaking into the TV industry. Specs are like writing samples as ascribing scribes draft episodes of TV shows they watch but don't actually write for. Specs are used by writers to prove that they know what a TV script looks like. Although they're less prevalent now, spec scripts with original concepts are more the norm. It's a good exercise for aspiring TV writers to come up with new stories for established shows. Speaking of someone who has written both fan fiction and spec scripts, it works the same muscles. Um... Have you ever heard the story of how Jane Espenson's spec script for Buffy went? No. Yeah. So she sent Joss Whedon a spec script uh, unsolicited and she sent it to him in a big box. And the inside of this box, it was filled with crosses and wooden stakes. (laughs) (laughs) And then... The script is, you know, like all about 
Buffy and uh, and Willow and Xander. I think it's season two when she sent this in. Um, basically meet this new girl at school named Jane Espenson, who is just so brilliant and so funny and so amazing that Joss Whedon needs to hire her. And it's just joke after joke after joke in the voice of Buffy, Willow, Giles, all the characters about how wonderful Jane Espenson is and that she needs to be on the show. So this is totally a time-honored tradition to do spec scripts, although that one is very unusual and weird and and not to be uh, duplicated. That's so funny. I was going to say, I've heard a lot of times if a spec script is good enough, it will actually get turned into a real episode um, if that writer mm-hmm. gets hired. Um, obviously, they'll like do revisions and work it over a little bit more. Yeah, this is a cool idea that um, that the show is actually fan fiction. I think I've heard J.J. Abrams say the same thing about his adaptations of uh, Star Trek that he did. And I think they're actually mentioned in that article. So that's cool that they're coming at it from the spirit of enjoying the source material and really wanting to dig into it. And I guess that speaks to what we talked about before with Mandy's uh, comment about adaptation, that they were really looking to get in there. Uh, That was the motivation and expand and kind of change the text. So that was always their approach. It's not going to make every fan happy, which you can't do, but that you do have to follow your muse. Yeah, and I think it's... It's indicative of how our understanding of fan fiction has really changed in the past couple of decades that as geek culture and nerd culture is becoming more mainstream and not something that you have to be ashamed of, that fan mm-hmm. fiction is is really being seen as a totally valid creative outlet for people um, and that it's not something that like creepy pervy nerds do in a dark basement by themselves (laughs) right (laughs) and that does it for this episode of shadows and shamblers if you would like us to read your feedback uh, please send us an email at contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com or you can go to shadowsandshamblers.com slash contact follow us on twitter at shadow shambler and send us a message there and if you see any interesting articles that you think we would like please shoot them our way and we'll give you credit for uh, giving us the tip on them. Thanks for listening and don't forget to tune in next week. Shadow and Shamblers is a hard ground media production and is released under a creative Commons, non-commercial, share alike, license.